0: Today I'm going to continue our thoughts from the book of Exodus. And we're at the point in the book of Exodus where God is giving His law to His people on Mount Sinai. And I want to share some thoughts about the love of God and the law of God. Because I think some Christians are... Confused when it comes to their relationship to the Old Testament law and what the Old Testament law represents and what it means to us, and there's a fair amount of confusion for sure. But before we get to that point where God gives His law through Moses on Mount Sinai, let's just recap and review. A few things from the book of Exodus so far. First of all, let's review something we studied already. The purpose of being called out of the bondage of Egypt. The purpose of the story of the Exodus. The purpose of experiencing the power as we read in the Exodus story. And that purpose is made known to us in chapter 19 of Exodus, verses 4, 5, and 6 where the Lord says, just before he gives the law, he has brought them out of Egypt by a mighty outstretched hand, mighty signs and wonders, led them through the wilderness, prepared their hearts for this moment when he will give them his law. He says this to them in chapter 19, 4-6. He says, you have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, And brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We commented on those verses and we said this, that Israel didn't know who God was until the story of the Exodus. And in the story of the Exodus, God revealed his name to them. God revealed his ability to redeem, to save, and his willingness and his power to do so. Then he called them unto himself. He's going to enter into covenant with them so that they would, on his behalf, be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. God made himself known to his people. Now he wants to make himself known through his people To the rest of the world. That is the established purpose that God has said just prior to giving them his law. Then let's review how they responded to this call. And that response is in Exodus 24 verses 3 to 8. After they hear the content of the law, they respond to it. And in those verses it says that Israel said, All that the Lord has said... We will do and be obedient. Wow. All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And now let's review what we've said before about why God gives the law to his people. We have said that the purpose of receiving the law is so people will take on the nature of God. That they would imitate God. Because God wants to say to the world, Do you want to know what I'm like? Do you want to know what my character and my nature is? Then just look at my people. That's what I'm like. Now how many that's a pretty tall command? Just look at my people. And when he says, look at my people, he doesn't mean look at you as an individual, but look as the the corporate church, how it shares its life together. Look at my church, look at the community life of my people, and you know what I'm like. That's what God wants to say. And in order to bring us to that kind of a testimony, he gives us his law. The purpose of hearing his law is so that you take on and that you imitate God's character, nature, and behavior. That's the purpose of the law. But when I say the word law to a lot of people, unfortunately, history and tradition has sorely misrepresented the law. Terribly so. So much so that some people, when they read Old Testament law, have this impression that God is hard, that God is harsh, he's a mean judge, and he delights in punishing people. Some people have that impression of God based upon reading the Old Testament law. And when it comes to the law, some people wrongly have the impression that holiness is all about rules. Mostly what you can't do. Holiness is about rules. And it's burdensome. It is joyless. It is solemn. It strips us of our humanity, strips us of our feelings, and we're not allowed to have emotion. And tradition has represented God based upon a wrong understanding of the law, of putting that kind of an impression out there, and church is just boring. It's out there. Tradition has done that to the law. However, when I read the Psalms, what the psalmist has to say about the law, the Old Testament law that God gave through Moses on Mount Sinai, listen to what the psalmist would have to say about the law. And you can find this in Psalm 19, you can find this in Psalm 119, statements like this. More to be desired than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Listen to the psalmist. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will delight myself in your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight and my counselors. I will delight myself in your commandments which I have loved. The law of your mouth is better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. It doesn't sound as if the psalmist thought the law was harsh, does it? It was his joy, it was his delight, and he loved to meditate in the law of the Lord. So if that's the proper perspective of the law, it's a joy, it's a delight, it causes us to be filled with with excitement, reading about the law, then what on earth happened? That tradition has turned the law into something that is burdensome, solemn, without joy, heavy, and I hate it when Sunday comes along because we're never allowed to do anything. How did that happen? How did that happen? Even in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle's assessment of the law. Now, Paul used to be Saul of Tarsus, Saul the Pharisee who was an expert in the law. And he would say statements like this in Romans chapter 7. He would say that the law is good, that the law is holy, and the law is just. And he would say, and after the inward man, I delight in the law. So the problem is not with the law. The problem is not that it's not holy, just, and good. The problem is with us, really. The problem is not with the law. The, Jesus, when he came into this world, had the very same problem in, in the Gospels. Especially the Gospel of Matthew brings this out. Because when Jesus came into, physically came into uh, Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and walked along those shores and dealt with the multitudes of people, he saw people who were under the yoke of the Pharisees, who had turned what should have been delight and joy, somehow misconstrued the law, turned it into a merciless yoke of misery. Uh, They made it a conglomeration of burdensome, minute rules and regulations that took away all sense of joy in serving God. That's what they did to the law. Whereas when Jesus interpreted that same law, he said, it's a different yoke. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. He says, my yoke is easy, it's gentle. My burden is light. And his interpretation of the law was a delight. Whereas somehow the religious people took the law and made it a misery for people. Six times in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard it was said by them of old time, but I say unto you. Not once, not twice, but six times in Matthew 5 he makes that. And what Jesus is not doing, he's not saying, you have heard that Moses preached this, but now I, Jesus, am preaching this. Newsflash, Moses and Jesus do not disagree with each other. Amen. They don't disagree with each other. What Jesus is saying, you've heard it said by them of old time. Let me paraphrase that. You have heard the scribes and the Pharisees comment and interpret Moses. And this is their interpretation of Moses. But I say unto you, but here is the proper interpretation of Moses. Their interpretation of Moses has made the religious life drudgery. But I say unto you, this interpretation of Moses, set your heart free, and the law is a delight. Jesus had to rescue the law from the terrible mishandling of the religious people of his day by which they condemned the masses through a wrong image of God that they put through the law. So Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law of the prophets, I haven't come to destroy it. I have come to fulfill it. Another study for another time, which I've already actually given, but the Pharisees had a wrong starting point. They believed that the ultimate bottom line was holiness as defined by creation, and they interpreted the whole law as if that was the goal, to produce a holiness as defined by creation. That was not the starting point of Jesus. When Jesus read the law, his starting point was the love of God. When a a lawyer asked him one day, Master, what's the great commandment? His answer was this, you shall love. What's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he would say on these two commandments, on these two core issues of truth, the entire law is based. The law was given to teach us how to love God and how to love our brothers and our sisters. That is the purpose and the content of the law. The Pharisees said, no, the issue is holiness. And Jesus said, no, the issue is love. As a matter of fact, the New Testament will plainly teach us that in spite of what tradition has done to the law through the centuries, that true holiness is not rules and is not regulations, but true holiness is love being expressed out of a new heart. You have that in First Thessalonians 3, verses 11, 12, and 13, where Paul the Apostle would pray, and he says, The Lord would make you to increase and abound and love one to another uh, toward all men, even as we do towards you, for this end that your heart may be established blameless in holiness. What is holiness? It is love flowing out of your heart. That is the New Testament definition of holiness. We have to begin there. That Old Testament law that God gave to Israel, it served as a powerful impression about the love of God. When Israel heard the law, it learned about the generous nature of God's mercy, it learned about the generous nature of God's compassion, and it learned about the generous nature of God's goodness. If the people would receive and live out the law, then the world will see what God is like because they would make his nature manifest. You see what the purpose of giving the law is? So that we live out his goodness, his mercy, and his compassion and he is revealed to the world through the love that we walk in when we receive his law. For instance, there's an example, I'll just give one of many examples out of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 to 27, you have a law that says this. When somebody borrows something from you, um, if you take your neighbor's coat as a pledge. How many have ever borrowed something and never got it back? Lend something out. If you lend something to your neighbor and you want to ensure that you get it back, it says if you take your neighbor's coat as a pledge, it says you are to give it back to him when the sun goes down. Don't keep his coat overnight. Why? Because it's his only covering. It's his raiment for his skin. It says, where is he going to sleep? If you take away his blankets, his coats, where are you going to take, how is he going to be warm at night? He says, it shall come to pass that if he cries out to me, I will hear. And the reason that God gives this command, it says very simple, for I am gracious. So the purpose of the law was to make sure that in all our dealings with one with another, it is compassion and grace that controls our behavior. And if I lend you something, and I says, well, give me your blanket and your coat as a pledge, so I know you're going to repay it, and then you're having some struggle repaying it, and the nighttime is coming, you're going to be freezing at night, what am I supposed to do? Well, they owe me. No, no. Grace demands that I give it back to them for the night. Why? Because God is gracious. And therefore we are to take on this gracious behavior. That's the purpose of the law. To teach us how to have grace in our relationships with each other. So when you read those Old Testament laws, when's the last time you read through all those laws? Anybody? Don't you just dive right into there and all those big laws? What's the purpose of them? Laws that deal with the topic of idolatry. Laws that deal with the fair treatment of slave girls. Laws that deal with compensating slaves for injuries that they incur under your mastery. All of these laws are meant to make a statement as to the character of a kind, benevolent, and a generous God. Now, there's some reason why you and I don't just, by habit, read all these laws, because we haven't got a clue what they're talking about, right? That's why we, don't, we avoid some of these scriptures. Like, for instance, let me give you a couple of laws that are obscure, and you say, what on earth is that all about? There is a law that says, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. And you're going to say, yes, I just read and meditated on that scripture the other day, right? It says, don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. And when you hear laws like, like, don't plant your field with two kinds of corn. When you read laws about, don't wear clothing made out of two kinds of material. And when you read laws like, don't mate two different kinds of animals together. We read some of that stuff, and there's some people who bring that forward to the New Testament, and they check, well, what kind of material is this shirt made out of? Is it made out of two kinds of material? And, and, and well, on and on it goes. And it can get very messy and complicated and judgmental and critical and things like this. Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk. For you and I who live in the modern Western world, those kinds of things might as well be written on the planet Jupiter as far as we're concerned. And that's true because what Moses is describing are customs that happened in the ancient Near East in his time of history. You see, the Canaanites practiced pagan religions. The Canaanites practiced what is called sympathetic magic. Now what that means, the Canaanites believed this, that certain actions on the earth had some influence over the gods of the universe and the gods over nature. And they believed that if they boiled a kid in its mother's milk, that somehow that secured the future prosperity and blessing of their flocks. So when the command says don't boil the kid in its mother's milk what Moses is saying is this don't engage in the fertility cults of the Canaanites because these practices that I just gave you some examples are examples of sympathetic magic that the Canaanites practised, so don't be taking their religion into your life. you see, unless you do some geology and some, some history study, none of that stuff would make any sense of us, to us. But the fact is this, all the Old Testament laws that God gave to Israel were for their benefit, for their health, for their welfare, and for their safety. All the laws were governed for that reason. Now, let me just repeat what I'm saying here is that God's goal, by giving His laws, is to make His nature known through the corporate life of His people. It's not that I myself, in my personal life, my character, I I hope it is good to other people, but when they see me, I hope it gives a testimony of what the Lord is like. But that's not the point. It's when they see us corporately together as members one of another what testimony does that give the world did you catch that what testimony does that give the world and the goal of God is to make his nature known through the corporate people of God not as, us, as an individual but as the corporate people of God who will observe the community that we enjoy with one another, and that is the credible testimony that the world needs to see. And that is the purpose of the law. Now, let's go to the law itself in Exodus 20, and I want you to think in terms of marriage vows. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34, where Jeremiah is going to make a comment on when God gave the law on Mount Sinai. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31, a famous passage of scripture, because the writer of Hebrews will quote this at length twice in, in his epistle to the Hebrews. But Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31 Now when Jeremiah is giving this prophecy, I want you to see in your mind a picture of the nation of Judah, the people of God, going into foreign captivity. I want you to see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, sieging the city of Jerusalem. I want you to see the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem on fire and I want you to see the Babylonians throwing ropes over those walls and pulling those walls down to the ground and the city of Jerusalem is being sieged and it's laying in rubble and it's aflame and all the people are going to go into captivity. That is the background by which Jeremiah is speaking these words. Chapter 31, verse 31, it says this. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, why is he making a new covenant? Obviously, because the old has produced nothing but the ruin and the destruction of the people of God. They're going into captivity. He says, I need to make a new covenant with them. Then he goes on to say, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That covenant that was sworn to on Mount Sinai, I have to give them a, a different kind of of a covenant. Because it's obviously this covenant didn't work. Now here's the phrase what I'm after. Which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband. Unto them. That's the phrase I want us to catch. Although I was a husband to them says the Lord from God's perspective and God's point of view what was happening there on Mount Sinai he was entering into a covenant with his people and as far as God was concerned it is a marriage covenant think of a marriage taking place God says, I am yours. I am the Lord your God. And his people are his. And he says, and you shall be unto me. Sound like husband and wife? I'm yours, you're mine. As a matter of fact, that phrase, if you can read the Hebrew, it says, you shall be unto me. Is a phrase that is used Many times throughout the Old Testament as a reference to marriage. You shall be unto me. In other words, I'm taking you as my bride. God's the husband. The people of God are the bride. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you got married, for those of you who have been married, when you got married... And you have all these witnesses, and you are exchanging your vows. I promise to be true to you, and you only. I'll keep myself faithful and pure for your sake. I have a question for you. When you gave those vows, did you put yourself under legalism? Did you consider you just became legalistic? I I want you to stop and think about that. When you made your marriage vows, did you put yourself under law? Did you put yourself in a legalism? I'm not under the law. I mean, okay, husband, say that to your wife. Wife, say that to your husband. I'm under no obligation. I'm not under the law. Were your marriage vows putting yourself under legalism? Obviously, you know the answer. But I want you to think. Because when it comes to the moral laws of God, why would we consider his laws legalism? Oh, I'm not under the law. You don't understand that statement. What are we talking about? Or are these vows that we made, are they obligations of love that is in our heart? Because I love you, I am obliged to behave in such a way. Are you catching the difference? Is it a law or is it an obligation of love? Am I making you think a little bit this morning? Is it an obligation of love? Marriage vows are to be taken freely by a willing heart and you speak them because you are responding to the fact that you have been loved. When it comes to the Lord, it's like this. Undeserved love has conquered our hearts, and therefore, for love's sake, we freely submit. The way you're looking at me, I wonder if I've got a lot of marriage counseling to do here. (laughs) Let me say that again. Undeserved love has conquered our hearts, And therefore, submission is freely given as a response to being loved. Amen. Are we understanding how this works? But when I say law, some people think of law as restriction and control. They don't like borders. They don't like boundaries. They don't want to say, do you mean I have to? And all of a sudden you think of what I can't do. But freedom without law is chaos. How many are glad you live in a free country? Does that mean there are no laws? See, years back in Africa, I think it was the country of Kenya, before they gained independence from Great Britain. I'm talking many, many years ago now. The day freedom was coming. And for some, unfortunately, they thought freedom meant this. I can get on the bus without paying now. Oh, it means I can drive my car any side of the road. Oh, I can drive any speed that I want to drive. I'm free. How many know there's a difference between freedom and license? There's a vast difference between liberty and license. And freedom is only possible with laws. There's no freedom possible outside of laws, or else it degenerates into complete chaos. So, I'm going to try to answer a question for us today. How does the law express God's generosity? How does the law express God's generosity? As I said earlier, some people think God is intolerant. Because he says, have no other gods before me. How egotistical does that sound? But I'm a jealous God. How egotistical does that sound? In the extreme, there are atheists that are alive today whose goal in life is to insist that the Old Testament God was mean, genocidal, self-serving, evil, cruel, and egotistical. He's not a loving God at all. And they point to things, and they wipe out all the Canaanites, and they, they point out to all these things, and have no other God before them, how self-centered, egotistical, mean being can that be? And this group of people are referred to as the new atheists. And they tend to be militant, but they are horrible exegetes of scripture, they read everything out of context, and they do mass, massive injustice to the scriptures, but answering their criticisms is not for today. That would have to be a seminar for another day on its own. But instead, what I want us to do is look positively at the first few of the Ten Commandments. Thinking in terms of marriage vows. In Exodus chapter 20, in verse 1, you have what's called the prologue. and to introduce these commandments, the Lord says this, I am the Lord God which brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord God which brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. That's the prologue to introducing these Ten Commandments. We have looked in their story of Exodus so far. The first part of the Exodus story is to reveal the nature of God. They had passively received His goodness. You and I can remember that Israel could do absolutely nothing to bring itself out of its own bondage. They couldn't help themselves for their own deliverance whatsoever. And when they had been in bondage and never had a day off for over four centuries... How many like a day off once in a while? I need to learn to take one. But we need a day off once in a while. How would you really like it if you would never have a day off in your life? Under cruel bondage of the Egyptians for nearly over 400 years, nobody had a day off. And when Moses comes to them one day, said, somebody appeared to me in a burning bush and has sent me to bring you out of Egypt. Well, you can appreciate that the Israelites had no idea who God was. They had long forgot about him. He was just some remote name in history who didn't seem to be cared about their condition. And they said to Moses, and who is it that sent you? What is his name? His name is... I am that I am, has sent me. Now then when he goes to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, And who is the Lord that I should obey him? And I'm glad Pharaoh asked the question. Because in the next ten plagues, he learned who the Lord is. He learned who he is. Through the whole story of the Exodus... Israel learned the name of the Lord and his name is I am that I am. That power of the Exodus that was released on their behalf is a revelation of the good and And the merciful nature of their God. His name is Redeemer. He is Savior. He is both willing. And he is able to deliver his people. God is greater than all the other so-called gods. None of the gods and none of the powers of Egypt could stand before him. All other gods are futile idols who can do absolutely nothing. And it is this God... The I am that I am that has delivered Israel and it is this God who takes his people to himself even in a marriage covenant. And God chose them according to Deuteronomy 7 verses 6 to 8. God chose them for no other reason except he loved them. I didn't choose you because you were great in number. I didn't choose you because you were mighty. The only reason I chose you is because my nature is love. In other words, there is nothing in me that obligated God to choose me. Nothing. It is just pure, absolute love. That's why God has chosen all of us. And so before he gives the commandments, he's reminding them of who he is. What he has done for them. And his nature of love. Now, the first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, I want you to think of your own marriage vows. I will be true to you. And you only. I mean, we don't put it in these words, but we could say, and I'll have no other husbands beside you. I'll have no other wives beside you. My eyes are for you. And you only. You shall have no other gods before me. Why does God make this his first command? What does it mean? No other gods besides me. Does it mean no other God in front of me? No other God in my presence? Does this mean there's to be no syncretism in worship? Does it mean no God except me? Does it mean no God in preference to me? Does it mean no God in defiance of me? Is it a relation issue? But I know what it does mean for sure. It means exclusiveness. It means this that you and I have been conquered. Just like the Egyptians' God have been conquered by the power of God, you and I have been conquered by the love of God. Come on now. Just like the enemies have been conquered by his power, you and I have been conquered. By his love. Come on now. Because if we don't understand he loved us, then this is legalism. He has loved us. And what it means, this commandment, it means that all my life is to be mobilized around one single loyalty. I am to demonstrate that loyalty in loving obedience by keeping his commandments. It's a response of being loved. We love Him, the Bible says, because He first loved us. Amen? Our ability to worship and to praise comes as a response of being loved. Amen? That's the first commandment. Now, the second commandment is don't make any graven images. Don't make any idols. Why does God give this command? This command is for Israel's welfare because idols cannot save. Amen? Idols cannot save. The story of the Exodus made that very plain as all the gods of Egypt, all the gods of the mightiest nation on earth crumbled before the God of Israel. So therefore to follow an idol is sheer folly. They can't even speak, never mind save. So it is only the Lord who can save us. It is the only Lord who can secure the welfare of his people. Idolatry is misplaced love and it is misplaced trust. So when God gives this command, what God is actually doing is this. He is giving you and I assurance that he will continue to be the same God he was. He set his love upon us. He delivered us. And that's just as true now as it was when we were in bondage in Egypt. Therefore, there is no need to turn to any other. There's no need to trust in anything else. As he alone is sufficient to meet all of our needs, God's love and God's willingness to save has more than been sufficiently proved on our behalf. So to turn away to another is to incur pain, it is to incur loss, and it violates the love by which you and I have been loved. No deeply loved, secure, happy, and provided for wife would ever seek another husband except at her own deep loss and her own pain. So this commandment about no idols means I'm more than sufficient for everything that you need. Continue to trust in me. That command is a deep expression of the goodness of God's love toward us. The third commandment. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. For some reason, modern society tends to think that means don't use Jesus as a curse word. Take the name of the Lord in vain. Well, I suppose it includes that, but it's far more than that. Taking, What does it mean to take a person's name? The obvious context that your whole life is implied here, not just your speech. When a woman marries a man, she normally, now times are changing, but she normally takes the name of her husband. She has taken her husband's name. Now she has to live her life Wearing his name. Bearing his name. She lives out a of love to ensure that the name that she now bears will never be sullied and never be blasphemed because of her behavior. Her actions now reflect the name that she bears. The fact is... Her behavior affects the husband's reputation and his character for better or for worse because she's taken his name. Her actions reflect character, his character. So that's why when we take the name of the Lord, do we understand what's happening here? When we take the name of the Lord, that's why... We will never gossip. That's why we will never fail to keep a promise. That's why we will never create division. That's why we will never bring stress to other people. That's why we will never fail to give. Because the Lord's name is at stake. We are bearing His name. Are you catching the significance of that? A believer who has been overwhelmed at the undeserved love of God could never do anything in the slightest that ever would bring reproach to that name that we have taken. We just can't do it. Love will not allow us to do that. So that's what it means when it says, don't take the name of the Lord in vain. It's never a case of if we take His name it's how we bear it before the world don't take the name of the lord in vain what is the name of the lord remember further on in the book of exodus in the story of the golden calf moses said i want to see you and there the lord proclaimed his name and and here's what it says it says the lord the lord is the lord god he is merciful he is gracious He is long-suffering. He is abundant in goodness and truth. He keeps mercy for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That is the name of the Lord that that we're bearing. Our behavior either is a reproach to the name of the Lord or our integrity for the name of the Lord. We bear it one way or the other. Don't take it. In vain. That's the name that we bear. That's the reputation we are to uphold. Therefore, never let us bear that name falsely. Jesus said, The one that loves me is the one that keeps my commandments. Let's think of it in these terms. The power of the gospel, this kind of living, always begins with the fact that God loves us. That's where it starts. Amen? That God loves us. He saves us and He delivers us out of His pure love. The fact is we were not worthy. And the fact is there was nothing in us that would put God under obligation to do anything on our behalf. The gospel begins in the pure love of God. It is not our repenting that causes God to love us. It's God loving us that causes us to repent. Amen? Are we understanding that? Because we've got a culture here where people try to live up to this image in order to somehow win God's favor. So let me say it again. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 states, It is not my repenting that causes God to be good to me. It's God being good to me that causes me to repent. The love of God always comes first with the gospel. Amen. He's going to heal people whether they deserve it or not. He will heal people who aren't even saved. He will heal people whose theology is as mixed up as ever. It doesn't matter. It's the pure love of God that begins. I repeat, it's not my repenting that causes God to be good to me. It's God being good to me that causes me to repent. It always begins with the grace and the goodness and the love of God. When he met Israel at Mount Sinai, he said, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You have seen how I brought you to myself. You have seen the display of my power on your behalf. Now I'm going to take you into covenant with me. And if you will obey me, then I will make myself known to the world through you. But before submission ever comes, we are conquered by the great love of God first. I think we need a revelation of the love of God. Now, the fault many believers have when it comes to this law, because there needs to be a seminar on this, because people are confused. People look at the law as a means of justification. It's not. You're not justified by the law. Only the Lord is your justification. But because I have been conquered by love, I freely submit to the desires of God as a response of love. But my problem is this. The human heart is desperate. Anybody ever discover that about your own heart? The human heart is desperate. And that's if we were to finish reading Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. I only read the first part of it it would go on to say what the new covenant is. The old covenant failed is because the heart was not able to respond to the love of God properly. Because the old heart is desperately wicked, desperately deceitful, Jeremiah says, and who can know it? So what God says is this, I'm going to actually give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that heart of stone... I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and then by the gift of my spirit, I don't know if I've ever told you, but I'm Pentecostal through and through, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, I'm going to give you the gift of my spirit, and I am going to write my laws, not on tables of stone, but I'm going to write my laws on the tables of your heart, and that law inside your heart will be divine impulse inside of you to be able to cause you to give the proper response. Response to my love towards you. So not only does he love me, but he takes on my responsibility and helps me give the response. And he says, and that is the new covenant. If we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the righteousness of the law. John says his commandments are not burdensome. So with this in mind, let's go back to our marriage ceremony. Go back and think of the marriage ceremony again. When you said your marriage vows to your spouse, was that an expression of love, or did you put yourself under legalism? You can give me your answer. I mean, if you love, <laughs> it should be. Uh, is it, But with the Lord, is it more to have and to hold from this day forward? Listen to the marriage vows. i tried to be inventive here and just think of scriptures. Listen to the marriage vow that the Lord is giving us on Mount Sinai. When he enters into covenant with us. Listen carefully. You're standing at the altar. I don't know who's performing the ceremony because it's you and the Lord who are getting married. Listen to his marriage vow to you. I created you in my image. Yet I found you in an unclean state. You had gone your own way and you brought great hurt to yourself. Nevertheless, I loved you. Your cries and your groanings have reached my ears. Your pain registered deep within my heart. I saw that you were unable to deliver yourself. I was moved with compassion because mercy is the center of my heart. I moved in power to deliver you. I released the power of heaven on your behalf. I destroyed the powers and the gods of this world that held you in bondage. I removed their authority from over your life. I have set you free once and for all from their terror and their lies. I gave you a change of garments. I removed your old garments of slavery and the spirit of heaviness that was upon you and I have replaced them with a garment of righteousness and a garment of praise. I put a crown of jewels on your head. I anoint your head with oil. I have brought you to myself to be my special treasure. I yearn to use you to make me known throughout the earth. Because I know your weakness... I therefore give you my Holy Spirit to write my words as divine impulses into the very fabric of your heart. My Spirit will empower you to do what you could not do before. Know therefore that I am faithful and I keep covenant and mercy with those who love me and keep my commandments. I do these things not because you are mighty or great in number, but for no reason except that I am love and I love you. That's his vows to you. Now let's hear our vows to him. This is us speaking to the Lord. I was lost and sinful, thinking nothing of you. Nevertheless, you set your heart upon me for reasons I cannot even fathom now. You are the Lord, you are the mighty, sovereign God. You have set Your love on me and You have showed Yourself as generous, kind, and merciful even to me. You demonstrated Your willingness and ability to rescue me from the depths of sin into which I had fallen. I could do nothing to lift myself out. My redemption has been completely an act of Your great mercy. Today, I stand free from my past only because of your grace. Now you have taken me to yourself to take your name and to be in covenant with you. How can I understand such love? Your gracious love has conquered me and I am now a prisoner to your love. Your matchless love has overwhelmed my soul and my heart. Therefore I freely and willingly oblige myself to the following principles. Number one, I vow to you that I will have no other gods before you. I will worship you exclusively and none other. How could I ever do else? I have been conquered by your love So I mobilize my total and my whole life to that single loyalty of honoring you who has so loved me and given yourself for me. Two, therefore I vow to never look to any idol for my security and my safety. I have seen that all the powers of the world crumble before you and there is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. No one else can save like you. None can oppose you. Why would I ever want to put my trust in anyone or anything else? To do so would only incur my own detriment and loss. You alone are the fulfillment of all I would ever need. I choose to trust you and you alone. Three. Therefore I realize that as I take your name... I will bear it before the world. So I vow to never do anything that by my words or my actions that would discredit your worthy name that is above all names. I give you the entirety of my life, my words, my actions, my thoughts, my attitudes, my motives to only bring honor and respect to that name by which I am now called Four. I will not allow myself to forget what you have done for me you have set a special time apart and you invite me to spend that time with you I will guard that special time of drawing near to you in spite of the busyness of life I will not allow the pressures and responsibilities to crowd out the time I need to spend with you to be replenished in your presence and in your love. How could anything else be more important than drawing near to you when you have purposely set apart time for me? Five. I who have received undeserved mercy... can do nothing else but to show that same mercy to others. I, who have been given, forgiven so much, can do nothing else but to forgive all others. How could I ever hold forgiveness back from others when I have been forgiven so much? How could I ever hold a grudge against another? The thought of betraying your love and shaming your name by such behavior is more than I can bear. Your love has conquered my heart and I freely oblige myself to honor you in all that I am and all that I do for your name's sake. I have nothing of value to offer you. All I can do is give you my response of love, my gratitude, and my devotion. If you can begin with nothing, and out of nothing create the heavens and the earth, then I give you my nothing. I give you my life. Lord Jesus, I love you.